Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast. My guest today is Laura Forsick, owner of Astrolytical, consulting and publishing firm founded in 2016. Laura, it's great to talk with you. Great. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk first about your background. How did you come to found a consulting company in the new space industry? I, I call myself an accidental entrepreneur because I never intended to start my own company. I was working as a scientist and then got uh, taken on by a, a space startup that failed, which is about when I decided to start my own consulting company. But my background is in astrophysics and planetary science. And um, for a while, I was just doing the hardcore research with space telescopes. And then I switched over to what I call experimental planetary science. So doing work in a laboratory setting to try to figure out how the dirt and dust of the regolith on planetary bodies move, so dust dynamics, and especially on the moon and Mars. And that got me really interested in stuff closer to home, especially the commercial space industry that at that time was really starting to pick up. And then from there, I got hired on by an organization called CASIS, Center for the Advancement of Science and Space, which is also known as the ISS National Lab, which does all kinds of experiments. They not do them themselves, but help facilitate experiments on the space station for the benefit of life on Earth, which really inspired me to think beyond my, my experience and teachings at that point to look and see all the possibilities of what could be done in a microgravity environment or what could be done on a platform in Earth orbit. Um, and then from there, it was uh, just sort of a, an accidental grab of a company that was doing a suborbital space flight, and they wanted me to run their Florida office. But as startups go in any industry, sometimes they just don't work out. So about almost six years ago now, I started Astrolytical, which does um, you know space science, space industry, and space policy consulting and space career coaching. And we really focus on, um, especially in the United States, but all, um, you know, try to, to globally as well. We have a lot of global clients working with, um, you know, government agencies, small businesses, especially startups, um, established companies, research firms, nonprofits, uh, investors, really anybody who wants to get involved in space and how, helping them figure out how it is that they can make their projects successful. There are a lot of us who would call ourselves involuntary entrepreneurs. So I, <laughs> I'm totally, totally in with, with what you're talking about there. You kind of answered my next question about your typical clients, but can you go a little bit more in depth about who your typical clients are and the kinds of things you do for them? Sure, I guess. So the majority of our clients are startups, whether they are still in stealth mode or pre-formation or whether they have started and they're small and they just want to grow a little bit. Um, and so it's a lot of helping them figure out how they can grow or who their customer base is or what the market is or understanding um, the, the ways that they can apply for funding, for example, through NASA or other organizations um, and really 
helping them where they are. Because a lot of time people who, who form their own companies, especially technical companies are complete experts in their field, but they don't really know the bigger picture. So we're here to help them see the bigger picture and where they might fit in compared to the rest of the ecosystem or the, their customers and, and competitors and, and all of that. Um, and then also it's a lot of government agencies, believe it or not, um, not just in the United States, but also globally. Um, we have clients both in the United States and Europe and Asia and um, I'd have to think about it <laughs> where else. Um, but yeah, it, so it, it's um, both federal level and local government agencies that want to expand space in their regions or attract space to their um, consumer base or to their, um, not consumer base, their, their residents, their, um, you know, their, their customers that are already there, their companies that are established or want to expand. So a lot of helping them out. Also nonprofit agencies, whether that's um, STEM initiatives or universities or other kinds of educational uh, organizations that want to expand in space. So um, it's quite a wide customer base and that's on the consulting side. And then there's the coaching side, which is where we help people with their space careers. So that's a lot of students, especially graduate level students and also a few undergraduates who need to help figure out what their next steps are, um, how to get their space career going, um, how to apply for grad schools or internships or their first jobs. But most of them are actually established professionals who want to work in a space career and have never figured out how to do that. And so maybe they're working in, in uh, a technical field in another industry, or maybe they're working in something completely different that isn't even technical. And they just have always had that dream of space. And they realize that they're not dead yet, therefore they can pursue it. So they come to me and I help them figure out exactly how they can apply their expertise and their knowledge to a space career, which is very multidisciplinary. You don't need to be a scientist or engineer. I'm speaking as a scientist, so I'm biased, but um, I, I love the diversity of clientele that come to me. Now, Astrolytical publishes a lot of different kind of research reports. So can you explain to us what is the difference between a flyby and an orbits report? Sure, yeah. So we just started publishing these reports this year. So we haven't actually done that many yet. Um, but in, that's my fun way. The flybys and the orbits is my fun way of saying an orbit is something that goes around. It looks you know, pretty in-depth. I'm thinking later there might be a category called lander that goes even more in-depth into something. Um, but that is really a big report. So the typical reports that you'd see other types of research firms putting out. Um, whereas the flybys is my cute way since I'm a scientist of saying we just fly by a topic. So we take bits of uh, let's say the report that we put out recently on launch delays, U.S. orbital launch delays, and we say okay here's all of the launch delays here in the United States of all U.S. orbital launchers, and then we can fly by certain topics. Let's fly by different launch sites around the U.S. and see how they do and see how you know their launch delays are. So it's really um, mini reports is what they are, and we plan to do more of them. So earlier this year, we had put out a space tourism report that we're currently revamping because there's been a lot going on. If you've been paying attention to the news at all, even this week, <laughs> there's so much going on with space tourism and private space flight. Um, so sometimes we, we don't do these annually. That was one thing that I wanted to be sure of is that a lot of times companies put out annual reports, which is helpful in some ways, but they're such a fast moving industry in a lot of ways. So um, by the time a year's gone around, a lot of these are really outdated. So I'm trying to get the ball rolling on much more frequent updates to keep, um, to keep our customers and our readers really informed on the, what's happening right now. 
And in fact, just this morning, uh, there was a release from Blue Origin and Firefly about a new um, a new space station, private space station concept that they're they're going to develop. And the name of it escapes me right now because I just glanced at it briefly before I got on with you. But they're talking about a a um, basically an industrial park and tourism destination in space that's that's completely privately owned. So those things are definitely on the horizon. Yeah, so Orbital Reef is that concept with Blue Orbital Orbit, Reef, thank Aerospace, you. Yes. Um, Boeing, uh, Redwire, <laughs> Genesis. There's a whole bunch of uh, partners there. And I actually love the trend of different partners coming together to really contribute to the greater uh, project because so many of these um, grand ideas that we have that we've been waiting for so long. I mean, commercial space stations, people have been waiting for decades for commercial space stations, right? Um, ever since probably, you know, the early sci-fi. And now we're seeing it all come together, not government agencies like an international space station coming together, but international commercial organizations and, and educational because um, Arizona State University is involved as well. I mean, I love seeing that. I love seeing the different ways that, that we can come together as a community to be, you know, to, to make these grand ideas come true. Now, you're in the media a lot as a space expert. What's that like? You know, that I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> and, and I'm not in the media as much as some other people. So some people are really media darlings. And I, I try to stay actually more into to print and um, uh, podcasts and radio than I do like TV, um, just my own personal preference. But it is quite fun to be able to go on and be that third party source that news organizations can really count on for the latest information. You know, I'm not um, diving in there as an insider who can tell you, you know, if I'm, I'm not a representative of a company that can tell you about that company's product. So I'm an outsider who can maybe be a little bit more objective. And I think that's a lot of times what journalists like. And I myself am very of journalism. Um, I considered at one point becoming a journalist, a space journalist. Um, and so I have a lot of respect for the media. And I think that really shows in the way that they interact with me and that um, they, they come to me because they know that they can get honest, good information from me. And um, I appreciate, you know, I don't get paid. People who go on to these media sources, they're not paid. That's journalism ethics right there. It's different if it's a documentary or an educational thing, but I've never been paid for journalism. Um, the, you know, source, because that's just not how it works. So I do this out of the kindness of my heart, because I feel like it's important to spread good information. And that's one thing that really, really is important to me, is to make sure that we don't have hype, because our industry is so fond of hype, right? And yeah, we want to hype things up, and we're excited about something, right? But we don't want to give unrealistic expectations, and then let people down, which happens time and time again, right? We have these grand projections with enthusiastic timelines, aspirational timelines, I think is what they call it, right? And then we let people down. We say, oh, it's actually over budget and delayed and, and it's not gonna have that return on investment. And then the stakeholders, whether they are investors or government agencies or the, the public get disappointed. So I'd rather put out there a little bit more conservative estimates, a little bit more cautious, skeptical look at the industry, even though I'm a fan, I'm also an analyst. So I have to present sort of that two sides of, yes, I'm excited about this, but here's why you shouldn't believe what they said. <laughs> do you find, and I had this question a little bit later on in the interview, but, but do you find particularly in, in being a, a media contributor in that way that you had a hard time breaking through as a young woman 
No, in fact, I think the opposite. I believe that um, a lot of agencies and a lot of journalists are now looking to get that diversity of perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that it helped, especially, um, you know, maybe five years ago (laughs) when I really started to get more interviews, that people saw me as a new face and a different voice. And and now it's even become even more diverse, which I love. So I actually think it's important that we, um, you know, bring up people who have been historically left out of the picture or had their voice suppressed. And so I'd actually rather step aside in a lot of cases and let somebody else who looks even different than than your typical space speaker speak up. Um, and And I try to lift people up as I can and and recommend people as I'm asked to. Uh, And I think it's really important that we have that diversity for representation purposes, that people can look and see, hey, there are people who look like me, Um, you know, whether it is a young girl or whether it is someone who is from a country that is not well represented in the space sector or whatever the case may be. Representation really is important and and visual media especially is where that can shine. I I said I'm more into print and so you can't necessarily tell what I look like in print, but it's certainly helps to have that diversity of perspectives as well. I always said I was the man with a face that was made for radio. So that's <laughs> <laughs> talk about some of the biggest challenges you encountered in establishing your consulting firm. Well, I didn't know what I was doing because I'm not trained in business. So starting right off the back, I had to learn everything the hard way. I did not go to business school and get an MBA. I'm a scientist. So I completely had to learn from scratch business, marketing. Um, I'm still learning the hard way with marketing and sales. I don't know any of that very well at all. So it's been a lot of trial and error and asking people for help and bringing people on board who know better than I do. Um, Also finding the customers and finding that match between what I and my company can provide and what the customers need and building that reputation. Um, Astrolytical is still tiny, so it's not well known. And um, I don't want it to grow very big, to be honest with you. I don't want a big company. I want it to be self-sufficient though. So we're still trying to um, ramp up our customer base. And especially, like I said, this year, we just started with reports this year. So really ironing out a lot of those wrinkles from this year and really making it um, more sustainable. Um, And so the biggest, hardest part really was also um, figuring out how to value myself because I come from an academic background where academics in general are trained to devalue ourselves and, and you know, speak for free, give everything away for free as a service to the community, which I still do. And I still do a lot of pro bono volunteer um, work, but um, I really, truly devalued myself, especially that first year. And I took on two really terrible clients that first year where by the end of that first year, you know, five years ago, almost about new year, five years ago, I actually considered shutting down the business and saying, okay, I tried, I give up. I'm going to go find a full-time job because this isn't worth it. But instead I realized it was actually the clientele that I had chosen that was taking advantage of me and making me miserable. And I needed to find different clients. So I stuck with it. And that second year, wouldn't you know, I found better clients and it's been better ever since. And it's still a a challenge to figure out who are those good clients that are going to work well with me and who are the clients that I should pass on. And I actually had an experience earlier this year for the first time, I had a non-paying client. I'd never had that happen before. Um, And so it's just figuring out who's the right match for the company and also tweaking things like paying in advance, (laughs) you know, learning everything the hard way is, is um, because again, 
I, I have that big picture outlook of looking forward in the space sector and, and wanting to reach for the stars. And that does not make the best business person. <laughs> so it's really been a lot of learning for me from people who know business, who know marketing, who know sales, who know how to actually work to make a profit um, and, and learning from them and, and realizing I don't have to know everything. I can really outsource to the people who know better. I'm talking with Laura Forsick, owner of Astrolytical, a consulting and publishing firm in the new space industry on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click on subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our podcasts or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Laura, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but you do career consulting as well. Now, who is that for and, and can you go into a little bit more detail about what it entails? Sure. So I'd say about a third of the coaching clients come to us are students. And a lot of them are graduate students. Some of them are undergrad. And that's simply the pricing. I've raised the pricing over time. So, um, you know, students just mainly can't afford it for the most part. But that doesn't mean I don't want to help them. And there is actually a student discount and student pricing up on the website as well. Um, and those students, they, they want to figure out their next step. And the reason I started career coaching in the first place, I started it about a year, year and a half after I started the company was because I recognized that this is something I needed when I was a student and young professional. I actually, when I was um, in my first full-time job, I actually hired a general career coach and tried to um, figure out how I could advance my own career because I was dissatisfied with how things were. Um, and she, of course, didn't know the space industry. There was no such thing. As, as far as I know, I was the first space career coach. There's been a few others pop up since then. Um, but, you know, it really helped me just to have that outside, that outside perspective of somebody who can show me how to be taken seriously, how to grow in my job, how to advance in my career and get to where I wanted to go. And so recognizing that I could have used the service, even as starting as low as, as early as undergrad, um, then I opened that up to students to say, here's what I can offer you. I can offer you a guiding hand, an outside perspective a bigger picture look, especially in high school, but also in undergrad, um, I was told that I had to follow one specific path and there's only one specific path to follow. And that's so not true. Hope your listeners know just how diverse the paths are in the space sector. All you have to do is look at the people in it and see where they've come from and how they've zigzagged their way. There is no one path. Very few people follow some straight and narrow path to get to the, you know, where, they, where they are today. And so, really helping students realize that they don't need to follow some pre-described path. They can actually um, follow their interests, follow their strengths and do things differently and pave their own way. And, and also with their strengths, you know, it doesn't have to be the traditional strengths. They don't have to be a fantastic speaker. They don't have to be a fantastic writer, but if they are a fantastic something, maybe they are a fantastic speaker or writer or video producer or whatever it is, mm -hmm. um, you know, play to those strengths um, and don't feel like you have to be pressured to be something that you're not. For example, I'm a terrible computer programmer and I was pretty well pressured as an astrophysicist to be a good programmer and I am not, and I'm never going to be because it's just not how my mind works. And so, um, um, it's, it's not helpful for me to try to play to a weakness, but instead finding where my strengths are. And so that is, um, like I said, about a third of the customers will be undergraduate and graduate students who just need help 
with their with their education or with their finding their first job, finding an internship, applying to grad school. The other two thirds are established professionals, most of them from outside the industry, some of them already working in the space sector, who either want to advance in the space sector or find a better job fit, or if they're outside the sector, they want they want to work in space. Space is amazing. There's so much going on right now. Sometimes they come from, you know, mechanical engineering backgrounds, and then it's an easy way to get them to transition. Sometimes they come from some completely different background, um, you know, some kind of like communications background or finance or, you know, where they think that it's different, but it's actually really good match because we all need financial analysts or business development or, um, you know, investors. We all need those kinds of skills in the space sector. Every business does or every organization, even, you know, government or nonprofit, they all need that. You know, we all need communicators. We all need writers and speakers, you know, so helping people outside the industry to realize there's a place for them and helping them, you know, whether it is finding a job or networking or whatever the case may be that they really need help with is, is it's all temporary, right? It's all helping them in the moment, whether that moment is one phone call or that moment is six months of coaching, um, helping them wherever they are to get to where they want to go. Does the United States, in your opinion, have a good space policy? And if not, what would you change? So it's always in flux. And with any high tech industry, the policy is behind the actuality, right? And so there's always trying to catch up here. And so one thing I really like about the US government's policy is that we have been thinking about this for a few decades, and we have been um, fairly proactive in the way that the US government has been supporting businesses and the cooperation between government and business, public private partnerships, and trying to do international cooperation. I love that just this morning, there was announced that Poland signed, signed the Artemis Accords. Now, I think it's up to 13 signatories. I mean, I love how the United States is a leader globally in the space sector. Um, some of the things that we fall behind are um, trying to look in the bigger picture, trying to look beyond. So for example, after the space shuttles retired, we had a gap where yes, NASA had awarded SpaceX and Boeing contracts, but they expected to come on sooner. But even you know, even when NASA thought those contracts would start, there was still going to be a five or six year gap. And then of course the, you know, the success of um, Crew Dragon didn't happen until about four years later <laughs> beyond what they thought. Um, so there was a significant gap there between the shuttle retirement and commercial companies coming on board just simply because of the resistance of government to fund the program properly. And also to recognize that technology goes slowly. It's always delayed. It, it never really goes in the time <laughs> timeline that you initially expect. So the planning, it just got pushed and pushed and pushed. And unfortunately, I see the same thing happening right now with the International Space Station. Um, we're seeing so many great announcements right now with commercial space station concepts. But the U.S. government needs to come on board. And by this, I mean Congress and NASA need to work together to actually properly fund these and fund them now so we don't have that gap. So we don't have to, previously we relied on the Russians, right, to, to bring our astronauts to the space station. And now I don't even think we can rely on, you know, Chinese space station um, when, when the ISS is gone um, because the, the geopolitics right there is too complex. So what that means is we're just not going to have 
uh, access to low Earth orbit for humans um, between ISS ending and commercial space stations beginning, unless commercial space stations can begin right now, <laughs> you know, unless they can really start to ramp up, which hopefully Axiom, they have a bit of a head start, but also some of these other concepts as well. So really thinking ahead to those kinds of things, thinking ahead in terms of space debris and, um, you know, cleaning up the, the orbital environment because we've left a lot of junk. And, and this is not just the United States, right? But the United States is one of the biggest in leaving behind defunct satellites, uh, spent boosters, um, you know, things that can collide or the ASAT test that we had previously done that probably still had bits and pieces up there, you know, just making sure that we're responsible stewards of the global uh, orbital environment. And then we're, we're trying to do lunar, cislunar, you know, activity now that's going to ramp up. We need to be good stewards of that environment as well. So really thinking ahead beyond just the immediate, yes, we want to get to the moon. How are we going to do this sustainably? And I, I don't think we're very good at that, <laughs> figuring out how to do that um, from a political or, or I should say policy point of view. But that is one good thing about space is that it's not partisan, it's parochial. So as long as you give good money to key states, you know, whether it needs to be funding a big rocket or whatever the case may be, space is usually pretty nonpartisan. And I do appreciate that. You're also an author, and I want to give you a few minutes to talk about your new book that you're working on. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I'm finishing up the manuscript now uh, for my next book, which still is title titleless, <laughs> doesn't have a title yet, um, but it is about private space flight, space tourism, and I specifically looked at astronaut perspectives. So I interviewed a number of flown astronauts, uh, NASA, ESA, JAXA, Korea. Um, so a number of astronauts who have flown, oh, also commercial astronauts um, through space adventures to get their perspectives on what surprised them about spaceflight and how they prepared you know, or, or couldn't prepare for those surprises. And then I also interviewed future flyers. Um, majority of them are suborbital future flyers, but also some orbital future flyers as well, and including um, some flyers that between when I interviewed them and when this book is published ha have flown, <laughs> like Wally Funk, for example, um, and also two of the four inspiration for uh, astronauts, and really gaining their perspectives on how they're preparing for their upcoming space flight and what is it about that uh, about spaceflight that really caused them why they decided to become early adapters and a look at um, how the reader might prepare. So I write the books that I want myself to read, right? I, I write the books that I think, wow, it'd be really cool if there's the book that can show real true astronaut perspectives and how I might be able to prepare for spaceflight, whether it's suborbital or orbital, whether it's ISS or commercial or a free-flying crew dragon. And so that's what I want to portray in this book. I want to show real true experiences from, from astronauts or astronauts-to-be. And, and I go into the word astronaut too. So I actually go into diving into what is space, what is an astronaut, and all the controversies there. Um, but also, like, how can the reader prepare? Because I truly believe that in the coming decades, and I don't know how many decades, but in the coming decades, people like you and I will be able to fly. Um, and I sure hope that my kids will be able to fly someday, right? So, you know, I'm hoping that and this is the hope, right? This is the optimistic part of me, not the analyst part of me, that I hope that the prices do come down and that the cadence ramps up so that common people, if they save up good money, you know, not the, mm -hmm. the half a million dollars right now or whatever it is to fly suborbitally, but 
you know, save up a decent amount of money for a few years and less than, you know, half a million dollars. And we could fly in suborbital space. And I, I truly believe that is a real possibility in the coming decades that I want to truly experience myself. And, and again, you know, with my kids. And so um, that's the kind of book that I want is to help people to prepare for that, that future that we all dream of. I told my wife uh, when I bought a lottery ticket not long ago that if we won, I was going to space. Are you going to go with me? And she said, absolutely. So we're in. We're just- <laughs> oh, hey, see, my husband wants to stay on the ground. So <laughs> that's fine with me. It's okay. You can be, you can watch me. You can be my cheerleader. <laughs> uh, we're, we're both going. So that's, that's just, as, love it. that's just the way it is. And I thought it was so cool that Bill Shatner went to space. I love, so I actually, it was good timing that I didn't finish my manuscript yet because I put his words into one of the final chapters of the book and how even just a quick suborbital hop for a few minutes in microgravity can really change your whole perspective on life at 90 years old. Mm -hmm. And also how these companies are allowing people who are 90 years old or 82 years old, or, you know, people who are um, not perfectly abled, you know, like someone who has a prosthesis in her leg, for example, um, can really fly in space. So I actually dive into the fact that, um, you know, people who are disabled, people who are a bit, you know, not the right stuff, as we remember from the 1960s and 70s, you know, um, can actually fly through commercial space um, you know, opportunities. And, and two of my children are disabled. So that's really personally important to me to be able to create the future where they actually could. It's not enough for me to inspire my kids and tell them anybody can fly to space because not anybody can right now. We have engineered the way that we have limited people, just based on the way that we've designed spacecraft, the way that we've designed procedures. But I believe that there's hope in the future for creating a more inclusive environment where people can fly, no matter what their socioeconomic background is, or their educational background, or their, you know, their geographic background, or their physical or um, hidden disabilities. And I'm really hopeful for that future. Laura, we're just about out of time, but I want you to take a moment and look out over 10 to 15 years and tell me what you see coming in the realm of space commerce. So that's a tricky thing to project, right? So that's part of what I do. But 10 to 15 years is actually quite a long time because the industry changes so much. Yes, it's slower than we hope, but it definitely changes. So um, as I mentioned before, we're seeing a lot of interesting commercial space station concepts. I definitely believe that at least one of them will succeed, hopefully more than one. Um, and we will see the ISS. I'm, I, I love the ISS. Um, you know, my first full-time job was working on the ISS, but it will die eventually. It'll be deorbited or it'll in some way be decommissioned. And we need to prepare for that future. And that'll happen in the next 10, 15 years. Um, also, Artemis. Oh, we didn't talk at all about the moon, but my heart is on the moon. And, you know, if I had a choice, I would I would choose any space flight. But if I had truly a choice, I would go to the moon because that is where I see myself really thriving. Is that um, beautiful geography and ge- I shouldn't say ge- beautiful geology of the moon, um, and and being able to really explore as a scientist what this other world is like. And of course, the way that we can you know harness the potential of the moon and 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 you know har- its beauty and its its potential for us. And I love it so. So um, hopefully.
hopefully getting humans to the moon in a more sustainable way. So NASA doesn't want to do just sorties. That's just their beginning is just sorties, you know, two week trips down to the moon. We want to create a lunar base. So I'm hopeful in the next 15 years, we will actually have the beginnings of a true lunar base. And of course, it's not just the United States, it's international. It's also, um, you know, China and Russia have their own plans for a, for a lunar base. So hopefully we'll get some real traction there and sticking to the moon and not just going and coming back and then not going again for 50 years. Um, and of course, going off to Mars, although I don't know timeline wise if that fits within 15 years, hopefully we'll send some humans to Mars in 15 years, but I don't know. Um, I'm really hopeful that space will continue to be integrated in our modern society the way that we take it for granted now. I'm hopeful that it'll be even more integrated so that people can really use the space data and space assets that we have up there in a way that um, you know, is, is even more so than now. So for example, space, uh, you know, LEO internet, for example, um, the ways that we use uh, space data and earth observation for uh, farming and agriculture and, you know, emergency response and communications and data and, you know, all the ways that human society needs to thrive and grow, that we can use space as just an extension of all the other things that we've been already doing. Um, and I don't even know what some of those really cool applications are going to be that comes up that is the next big thing that we can use space for. But I'm hopeful. Well, we'll have you come back and talk about Artemis uh, on another program. But it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining me on the Xterra podcast. Thank you again for having me. That is going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. You can subscribe to the audio version of the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other popular podcasting platforms. Be sure to click on subscribe to be sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast or any of our other videos. You can also get daily news at XterraJSC.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at XterraJSC. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.